This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there, this is Positive Parenting, and I'm Armin Brat. There is not a whole lot of consensus out there about how to parent in the digital age, and it's hard to talk about this stuff without feeling judged. And part of the issue is a phrase, digital natives. Now, that was a phrase that was coined in about 2001 by a guy named Mark Prensky, who was a guest on this show a while back, and he describes it like this. Digital natives are people who are used to receiving information really fast. They like to parallel process and multitask. They prefer their graphics before their text rather than the opposite. They thrive on instant gratification and frequent rewards, and they prefer games to what some would call serious work. Now, some people don't like the phrase digital natives, especially because it's often paired with digital immigrants, which refers to people who grew up without all of these tech tools out there. And a number of researchers have begun to point out that digital natives could also be called digital naives, who may be clueless about the quality of the information they're consuming or the ways that their own data is being mined. And that brings us to the topic of this part of today's show, which is how we as parents can apply the wisdom that we have gained throughout our lives to a world that we may not be quite as familiar with as our kids. Nevertheless, our experience is relevant and urgently needed to supplement our kids' digital savvy. The Mysteries of Parenting Digital Natives, coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Devorah Heitner, who is the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Devorah, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Let's talk about what's going on with kids. I mean, I think that it's getting to be sort of a, a yawner at this point. Oh, kids and their screens, and they've got everything, and they've got the tablets and the phones, and we don't know what they're doing, and blah, blah, blah. But what, what's really happening out there, and how, how are these kids different than we were? Well, a lot of parents think about screens in opposition to real life, but this is how they're negotiating their real life. And it's not that they're not having face-to-face -face with friends, but they are navigating a lot of their social lives with peers and, and even people they don't know in terms of reputation via their phones, via games. And so think it's artificial for us to think of this as like something different and that you know from from their real lives we have to think about 
screens are their lives, <laughs> you know, in many ways. And and just like we navigate a lot of our lives from our smartphones, once they have a smartphone, they're going to do the same thing. Yeah, and it's one of these things where, you know, there still are people, it surprises me, getting as many books as I get about parenting here at the show, that there are people who are still insisting that we need to go back. And I keep thinking, that's just not going to happen. We have to figure out how to move forward, or at least stay where we are, in a in a way that works for everybody. But going back is just not going to happen. I agree with that. I think we, we do want to look at balance, and there are times where, if something is negative, you know, if we replace our paper calendar with a calendar on our phone and we start missing appointments, maybe we do go back to the paper calendar. So we should always look at how something is working for us. But I agree that this is very much part of our lives. And in many ways, the the screen apps that are available and the, the shows that are available and games that are available to our kids are much better than what we grew up with. I mean, I would play Minecraft over Ms. Pac-Man any day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean... Right, Miss Pac-Man, you just, there's really nothing to accomplish except eating those things and escaping the ghosts. But Minecraft, my God, it's amazing what my, what my, my daughter, my 13-year-old, is just obsessed with the stuff. And I thought it, when she started doing it that it was a complete waste of time. And then she took me on a tour of her creations, her worlds, and wow. I mean, it's just, it's just stunning what you can do in those things. And and there's there's creativity. It's art. I mean, it's you have to look at it from a different perspective. It's not just a waste of time. And it's so great that she took you on a tour and that's we do want to go to our kids with that curiosity and say, Hey what why are you so into this? But not like why are you so into this? What's wrong with you? But show me why you're so into this because I want to understand your world. And it doesn't mean I'm sure in your house you don't let your daughter play Minecraft to the exclusion of sleep, eating, <laughs> going to school and all the other things in her life. But I think you can appreciate the skills that she's building, the creativity, the ways that maybe nurturing some of her friendships, more by having been given that backstage tour. Oh, absolutely. I think it gives me a, a much deeper appreciation of some of the things because, I mean, some the other stuff that she likes is, is screen-related as well. I mean, the games, but there's also she became obsessed over the summer with 3D printing, and that requires a lot of screen work. You actually have to get on there and use a, a, a CAD type of type of program to design something and manipulate it and twist it around and figure out why it didn't work the first time and the second time. I mean, the, the tech. I mean, I'm sounding like a, a crazy advocate for technology, but which I sort of am. But it's. Uh, I mean, I think as as parents, we need to understand exactly what you're saying that there's there's good stuff here, and but it needs to be managed. Absolutely. But I mean, again, with 3D printing, I mean, there's so much envisioning and then also failure and frustration, delayed gratification, um, and learning to manage some of that visioning, delayed gratification and failure is great preparation for a lot of things, both on and off the screen, that will be really helpful to your daughter as she grows up. Now, you use a phrase... Uh, digital natives and digital immigrants, which is a phrase I, I learned first when I was editing a book by Mark Prensky, and I saw him in, in the, uh, you mentioned him actually in the book, and I thought it was a great phrase way back then, and it, it continues, and what's interesting is that the, the digital natives of when I was editing that book and when Mark Prensky wrote the, his book in 2001, they're now digital immigrants, those kids. I mean, my, my older kids who are in their 20s, they can say, boy, I remember before we had touch screens. And that's they're they're just different than the thirteen year old. Sure, and the touch screens I think are so intuitive even for young kids. I mean, some of the research from David Kleeman and others that I cite 
in ScreenWise show that kids are creating content before they can read, which is really interesting because a keyboard and, and, and programming languages were really inaccessible to the preliterate, but now you have things like Scratch Junior, which is a visual programming language for preschoolers, and you also have things like just most kids can take a selfie when they're three and kind of go through all, all your photos, reorganize your apps. So the touchscreen generation is absolutely taking off in fascinating ways, and that's the digital natives I'm referring to. Uh, a lot of the today's parents did grow up with at least mobile phones, and I forget that because I'm a slightly older parent, but you know, I spoke at my son's school a few months ago, and there are plenty of parents of kindergartners who are in their 20s at my son's school who absolutely grew up with a mobile phone. And so even my assumptions about the generation gap, I mean, all of, all of that is changing all of the time. So millennial parents now grew up maybe even with MySpace or some other social media account. So it's, it's all going to change yeah. quickly. But I think the way the ways that there, there there's continues to be a gap, not just in what we know, but how we use it. An adult and a child will use Instagram in very different ways or play a game and interact in that space or use a Tumblr in different ways. So it's, it's not even about the different tools or facility because plenty of adults have incredible facility with, you know, gaming and social media. But our, our instincts are to use things differently than children and, and teenagers will, and we want to understand how our kids are using things and not assume that they will so use here's, them the same way we will. Here's the thing that, that bothers me, though, where I, I begin to see a problem, and I, I have been looking at a lot of research about kids, particularly young kids, and pediatricians are actually now finding that some very young kids are not developing hand-eye coordination the way that they used to. And in many cases, muscle tone is not developing the way that it used to because kids are spending, I mean, little, you know, infants, nine months old and up, are spending so much time on a screen, they aren't actually picking up a real block and stacking it on top of another one. They're doing that by just dragging and dropping. That seems to me to be a, a, a problem that could get really big. Yeah, I'd be interested to talk to some occupational therapists that work with toddlers and preschoolers about that and see... You know, because the other the other big difference is preschool and kids who go to preschool tend to build with blocks and hold pencils and have markers and unfortunately, at least here in the U.S., we don't have free universal preschool where every kid is getting access to that. So I would, I'm just curious about about that because kids also struggle with dragging and dropping. I mean, there are some things to do on a tablet that kids aren't so good at, and so we can we can look at the data and think about that. But super interesting if if kids are losing muscle tone, then that might be something that would prompt parents to say, okay, I do want my kid to cut with scissors, you know, <laughs> I do want my kid to play with markers and build with blocks and Legos and pry them apart, so let, let me give them some practice with, in the physical world. Now, you talked, Vora, about the need for assessing your own digital literacy. How do you do that? Well, you want to understand wh what your own proclivities are. So if you know, for example, that you're an abstainer, if you're one of the few adults at this point who's not on Facebook, for example, and you have no social media at all, and your child approaches the age where he or she wants social media, I think you have to recognize that, yeah, you, you do actually have a knowledge gap and that your middle schooler wants Instagram and Snapchat and you, you need some mentorship. You need yourself to learn a little bit about what this social media world is that your child wants to enter uh, and you can get that in a number of ways. You can decide, I still want to abstain. I'm not going to get an account, but I'm going to talk to the PR person at my work or a younger relative who's really into this stuff or someone else in my child's life. But you do need to assess where where you're strong. Like I know, okay, my knowledge of social media is strong, but my knowledge of gaming 
is relatively weak. I didn't grow up as a gamer, and as I said, the games weren't as cool when I was a kid. I might have been a gamer if Minecraft had been around, but I wasn't a gamer. And I still haven't gotten as into games as a lot of my friends, and there's a gender component to that and also just maybe a personality component. So that's where, as my child gets more and more into games, I'm like, okay, that's an area I really need to strengthen my knowledge. I need to let him show me the games he's playing. I need to make sure that I'm working with him to curate age-appropriate games for him and that are good fits you know, for his frustration tolerance, those kinds of things. So I think it's it, it's good to assess where am I strong and where am I not so strong, and then how can I make sure I know enough to be there for my child in this space. Talking with Devorah Heitner, who is the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive, Survive, I'm sorry, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Devorah about some things like empathy and family life and growing up under the digital lens. I'm Armin Brunt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Hi, it's Practical Polly's radio show. If you're just figuring out that healthier cooking oils are better than solid fats, you may be asking, now what am I going to do with all these tubs of lard? Ever had one of those moments when your favorite skinny jeans feel too tightly tailored? (laughs) Generously apply lard to your hips and thighs, and those fancy pants will slide on like a dream. Or here's a family-friendly idea. How about making your yard into a lard fun park? Frost your driveway with a nice thick coating and give those kiddos a downhill thrill no matter what time of year. Having a bad hair day? Yep. A little lump of lard can tame your flyaways in a jiffy. So there's no need for that lard to go to waste or to your waste. But get your best heart-healthy trade-up with healthier oils, like canola, olive, or other vegetable oils, which can actually lower your chances for heart disease. Now that's a tip worth keeping for life. Learn more at heart.org slash face the fats. Canola Info is the national supporter of the American Heart Association's Face the Fats campaign. Who said that? Me, down here. What are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. The forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Play in puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Devorah Heitner, who's the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Um, want to have you talk a little bit about, you've got a whole chapter on empathy, and that seems like an interesting it's an interesting thing. I mean, I know that, that uh, Google, I think, or was it Twitter? I can't remember which one of them, fa- Facebook or Twitter, was trying to come up with some lo- some algorithms where they could predict mental health problems, particularly suicide, by looking at language. It seems like, you know, we think of empathy as being something face-to-face. Are kids missing that? that I think pa- kids or? have tremendous desire to be a really good friend, and that's what I see when I work with kids at a lot of schools all over, and they want to do the right thing. They want to be a good friend. But one challenge with social media is it's a little bit easy to feel like we've been a good friend when we comment on someone's post or even like it 
or if our friend does cry out for help. Like if you see a friend talking about or even taking a picture of a self-harm situation, for example, and sharing it maybe in a social network like Instagram, it's easy to feel like we've been a good friend if we just say, oh, honey, you're so beautiful. I love you so much. Please don't do that. But those are situations that are absolutely code red situations where if you're a kid and you see that, you need to get an adult and get some help and let an adult know that your friend is actively in trouble and posting about it. That So I think we need to make that really clear for kids. Like like if a friend is having a bad day posting on their on their wall or, you know, liking something or sending them a direct message that's encouraging with some emojis may, may well cheer them up. But if it's more than that, we need to kind of cut across that line and, and especially kids need to know when is a situation dire enough that an adult needs to be sought out immediately. So so that's a that's a tough one. It, with yeah. with empathy, I really want kids to understand though who they're sharing with. Like if I'm on a group text and I'm talking negatively about someone and then I find out they're on the group text, you know, what can I do, right? I I've suddenly violated, you know, that the the kindness rule in my communication and it's very easy to do that in a group text or even a, a any kind of texting situation because we're so cut off from affect. We're so cut off from the recipient's emotions. And so we really need to remind kids and adults, frankly, that there's another person on the other end of that communication. And even if the person we're being maybe mean about isn't on that group text, someone's likely, we're talking about sixth and seventh graders here, they might show it to that person, right? Because people sure. are kind of unkind and they enjoy a little drama. So we need to, to think about that. And, and there's also just an etiquette component to empathy, which is if I text you and you don't respond... I shouldn't just text again and again and again. I should try to imagine your experience, which is that you might be sleeping or doing your homework or involved in a really deep discussion with your parents or outside shooting hoops in the driveway. You might not be sitting there by your phone. And so if I can remember that you're a human being and not just, you know, a bot responding to me, then it it helps me calm my own worry Mm -hmm. that you're not responding because you don't want to be my friend anymore. How is it that kids who are untrained can have a sense from what they're reading on a screen about whether there is a problem? I mean, I, I'm just sort of thinking of uh, my, my 13-year-old when she was, I guess, 11, had a kid in her class who committed suicide, an 11-year-old mm-hmm. girl. And she was showing me, my daughter was showing me some videos that this girl had made. And, you know, I'm looking at these things, trying my very, very best to f- identify something in there that would have been a red flag. And there was nothing. And then on the other hand, you've got kids who are saying, oh, I want to kill myself and I hate life. And, and they aren't serious. And I mean, they're not going to do anything about it. So how do you get a kid to be able to identify these things in, in writing uh, and when parents can't? Well, that, and, and it's not fair to expect 11-year-olds or any of us really, but especially children, 11-year-olds, to identify men- signs of, of mental health. I'm I'm really talking about pretty clear, like like again, a picture of someone self-harming would be okay, a big red okay. flag. But I I agree with you that this, there's a very social media is quite noisy, and a kid could be quoting song lyrics and sound horribly depressed, but be having a great day and just love a really depressing lyric, or a kid could be quite depressed and post something that we wouldn't understand. So, and many times we see images from people we barely know or we actually don't know at all because of the way social media works. So what do we do in that scenario? I, I, I think we can't expect 11-year-olds to always know. I just think one thing we can say to our kids is if something is concerning to you, please show it to me. Your friend isn't going to be in trouble. If, if, if you see something and you think someone might need help, please come to me or another adult. 
and just make that really clear. And in general, with social media and gaming, we want kids to know even if they've broken our rules, like say they've gotten a Snapchat account, we told them they couldn't get one until they were 13, and they get one when they're 12, and then someone's harassing them in Snapchat or sending them pictures that make them uncomfortable or doing something like that, they can still come to us. We really need our kids to know that that we're in this world with them and we're supporting them, even if it's not our world. Like say we choose not to be on Snapchat, for example. That doesn't mean we can't help them if they run into a difficult situation. Let's talk about what's going on in school. <clears throat> I remember one of the things when I was working with Mark Prensky was he was talking about how he expected a lot more apps and games to be showing up in school as part of classroom education. It seems like that hasn't happened as much. I mean, there's a lot in my daughter's school, and they're pretty tech-savvy there. They're having them watch, like, CNN for kids and, and do, doing things, but they're, they're not really using the what technology has to offer as far as experimenting with different alter, you know, different alternative ways to do things. I think so, we're at a very early stage, and school yeah. looks a lot like it did in the factory years and in the farming years still. Yeah. I mean, we're still looking at school that's way behind where industry is and way, be, you know, in terms of innovation. And schools are trying, and I think they're they're very much trying to get devices to kids, which is, you know, in and of itself kind of pointless, right? When getting getting the devices to kids is not the point, but then what we want is how can we innovate? How can we personalize learning? How can we turn kids into more content creators versus consumers? How can we get kids connected globally? And the gamification that you talk about is amazing. I mean, James G. and other, other folks have written about how wouldn't it be great if the cost of failure in school was lower, in fact, so that kids didn't perceive this huge risk in learning. And that's how it is in a game. Your your character dies, and you continue at that level. And so there's a huge incentive to take risks and, a hu- and, and not this big disincentive, whereas in school, failure is still shaming. So, well, so what why, we want to do is just make there? school more like games. Yeah. I, think we're, I think there's a lot of fear of innovation in schools. I think parents uh, sometimes are fearful of schools that don't look like the schools that we attended. I think that educators aren't being educated. I mean, there's this whole testing, this huge emphasis on testing and, and data um, certainly is a huge disincentive. I mean, educators are not being incentivized to risk, right, <laughs> take risks. Right. It's absolutely the opposite. And you have some other big problems. Well, there's the, the kiss of death phrase, which is evidence-based. It really totally undermines any, as you're saying, any incentive for innovation. Because if you have to have three years' worth of data by the time you get to the end of it, the thing is outdated. And I think we're not teaching kids how to fail and how to, for example, collaboration becomes much easier, you know, in a Google-enabled world where I can work on a Google Doc with you. But, you know, I'm 41 and I've, I've written three books and I've done a lot of collaborative and, and individual projects and I can tell you that collaborating, like my, my last book was a curriculum which I collaborated on, but you have to figure out how you're going to collaborate. You know, do you, am I doing an A-B collaboration where you work on this part and I work on that part? Are we going to work where I write a draft and then you edit the draft and add to it? Are we going to sit down together in a room and make something happen together at the same time? These are all different modes of collaboration. And when a child's teacher, you know, sends them home with a doc and says, okay, you four collaborate, <laughs> we, we actually need to try methods. And that's one of the things I learned way back in art school where I was sort of taught to be an auteur and the more industry-oriented film school down the street was actually teaching people roles and how to collaborate and when I actually had went to make my first film out of college, I wanted to work with those people from the industry school because they knew how to work together. Hmm. So where do we go from here? Not in education, but just generally speaking. What do you expect to be the next big innovation in in screens or technology for kids? 
That's a great question. I mean, we really want to, Marina Bears talks about playgrounds versus playpens, which I cite in the book, and I think we want to look for apps for kids that are more like playgrounds. As parents, we really want to mentor more than we just monitor. We don't want to just track and spy on our kids and see all the sites they're visiting. We want to talk to our kids about what do you think we should do about the fact that there are these sites that are negative, that are not positive for kids. Let them come up with solutions. I met some kids in, here in Illinois who had come up with a, a curated site of clean Minecraft videos for younger kids because they knew that younger players were sometimes forbidden to look at YouTube videos, which is a huge way that Minecraft community you know, teaches itself. And because of the language and other negative things that were happening in some of those videos. And so they curated a solution. So that's what I want to see. I want to see kids looking at some of the challenges. Um, so I'm, I'm not concerned about the future at all. I'm excited about the future in terms of kids in tech, but I think we need to involve them yeah. in creating some of these solutions. Excellent. Devorah Heitner, the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Thanks very much for joining us. And the website, by the way, is RaisingDigitalNatives.com, right? Yes. Thank you okay. so much. Thank you. Dear Mom and Dad, one thing I've learned in the Army is that when you're lucky enough to get a little time off, you should put it to good use. So I'm taking a moment to write and tell you that I'm fine and doing well. We have good days and bad days over here. We try to remember the good ones and get through the bad ones as best we can. Mostly we have each other, and that's what keeps us going. That and the pride of our commitment to getting the job done, whatever it takes. I miss you all very much and can't wait to get back to life as usual. Please tell everybody hello for me and that I'll be home soon. And mom, since you asked, if anyone wants to help, just tell them to contact the USO. You can't believe how much they do for us. With love, your son Michael. The USO depends on the generosity of the American people, people just like you. To find out how you can help, visit us at USO.org. The USO until everyone comes home. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brunt, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. You know, one of our biggest challenges here at Parents at Play is to find games that tweens and teens will not only be willing to play with their family, but that they'll actually want to play and that don't involve cell phones or anything else with a screen. Here are a few that we're confident will soon be on your family's list of game night hits. Disgusting Anatomy Brain from Scientific Explorer. This kit is part chemistry experiment, part anatomy lesson, part art project, and all disgusting. It starts innocuously enough in the kitchen where you cook up some gooey gelatin and pour it into a mold to create a slimy, life-size model of a human brain. While you're waiting for it to set, read the booklet and find out the basics of brain anatomy and function. A fun, engaging educational project to do with your kids. It's for ages 9 and up. You can find out more at alexbrands.com. Really bad art from Gather Round. The premise is pretty simple. Each player takes a card that has a short phrase on it and, without showing the card to the other players, draws his or her best interpretation. Gather all the cards face down, add one more, mix them up so no one knows whose is whose, and then match the cards with the illustrations. Oh, oh, sorry, forgot to mention that you have only six seconds to read the card and draw. It's a clever, fast-paced, and really fun game that'll keep everyone laughing and wanting to play it again and again. For three to six players, ages 12 and up, from wonderforge.com. Stick Stack from Gather Round. 
All you have to do is pull a multicolored stick from a bag and using one hand place it on top of another stick, being sure that they overlap on a matching color. Easy peasy. Well, except for the part where all those sticks are balanced on a small cup that's attached to a vertical post. Oh, and that post has a spring at the bottom which makes it wiggle and wobble all over the place. If sticks fall off on your turn, you keep them in front of you. And on your next turn, you can play one from that pile or draw from the bag. The game goes on until the bag is empty and at least one player is out of sticks. It's for two or more, ages eight and up, and you can find out more at wonderforge.com. Suspicion from Gather Round. You've been invited to the A-list masquerade party at a famous art collector's villa. Poor guy has no idea that you're a jewel thief and that your plan is to wander around the mansion stealing gems. Uh, unfortunately for the collector, quite a few of the other guests have the same idea. The object of the game is to figure out the identities of your fellow players before they figure out who you are. You do that with deductive reasoning, which simply means that you're using clues, some of which come from dice rolls and cards, which allow you to move your character or someone else's, logic, strategy, and possibly some guessing to expose your opponents. If you like Clue, or even if you've never even heard of the game Clue, you'll love Suspicion, and you'll have a great brain-teasing time playing it. It's for two to six players ages 10 and up. More info is at wonderforge.com. For more reviews of toys and games that you can do with your kids and that you'll love doing with your kids, check out our website, parentsatplay.com. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.